And so I haven't read the entire bill. I don't even know if it's out there able to be read, but it seems like what you can find on the proposals is that the gist of it is you know, they want to take the decision to prosecute away from military commanders give it to like a special prosecutor, but a special prosecutor that's still within the Department of Defense. So not like a civilian prosecutor or like, you know, an assistant United States attorney or something like that. Um, I don't, I'm not aware, I haven't seen any other details beyond that in terms of how, you know, the rest of those gaps might be structured. Like, who's going to be in charge of, of pulling the new jury members? And, and this, is important, this is important for a reason. Because when you're talking about prosecution discretion, I'm not sure what the gripe is. Um, and, that, and that's something that I haven't really been able to tell. No one really comes out and says that when they're talking about making these changes. Um, but, for example, one gripe could be we have 10,000, and I'm just making these numbers up, we have 10,000 reports of sexual assault. We are only charging 3,000 of these people with crimes, and we're only getting convictions on 500 of them. You know, those numbers, while I just made them up, are somewhat accurate in, their, in reflecting the numbers as they are in terms of percentages. Like, out of the number of reports, way less than half actually go to court. And of the ones that actually are taken to court, charges filed, way less than half of those are ever result in conviction. And so I'm not sure, or it's unclear, what the gripe is. Like, um, is the gripe that they should be filing more charges based on the number of reports? You know, that could be one, but then that doesn't really jive with uh, the idea or the that doesn't really jive with the numbers that less than, you know, 25 or 30 percent or whatever of the cases where charges are filed are even resulting in conviction. Um, and then there's that report saying that a lot of those cases essentially should have never gone to trial, and it was kind of a violation of the members' due process rights because there wasn't sufficient evidence to take those things to trial. And so that kind of gets back into, like, understanding what those numbers really mean and then figuring out what the complaint is and what are you trying to fix. So all we can do or all we can really do is kind of speculate about what they're trying to fix, and it, it does seem like the motivation is to fix quote-unquote sexual assault in the military, which to me seems that they want there to just be less sexual assault. And, you know, therefore, court-martials and criminals, that's just like in criminal proceedings, that's just one piece of that giant culture pie, you know? And it's not like um, the United States military is the only place where these kind of sexual assaults are going on. I'm sure that at every single sizable college location, you have twice the number of these going on. There's just no reporting mechanism at a college for when somebody grabs your butt at a party. And I don't say butt grabbing 
uh, facetiously or to try to minimize sexual assault. These are, a butt grab is literally a sexual assault that is reported in the military that will lead to a legitimate criminal investigation by the office of, or, you know, by NCIS or CID in the Army or, you know, the Air Force version, um, Office of Special Investigation. And potentially whatever, if the Marines have their own one separate from the Navy version, then, then like, that's what I'm talking about. So there will be a legitimate investigation into a booty grab. You will have some kind of punishment, most likely, or administrative action will be taken against a military member who grabs the butt of somebody else without consent. That's not going on in college campuses, right? They're not showing up at the college administration. Like, this guy grabbed my butt at a party off, you know, off campus at a private residence. Um, college doesn't have any authority to do anything about that. They might have, you know, some policies where they could potentially expel people maybe or take some sort of administrative action from a uh, collegiate or educational institution standpoint, but, but unlikely not because people are paying to go to the university, right? It's not, not just a different situation than military members. And... You know, and so I don't, and all that is to say is you have all these numbers that make it look like the military is way worse than other parts of the society. When it's not, it's the same. And then you have the notion that the military actually is taking action on a bunch of things that would never even be reported in the civilian world, but they're not prosecutions, not criminal prosecutions. And I don't know if that's the gripe. Like, I haven't seen or I'm not aware of any statements, you know, that suggest these things are being dealt with inappropriately. I just heard about the number. So it'll be interesting to know if we if we eventually get some more commentary on this. Um, but maybe, but maybe the the reasons are kind of irrelevant because. They've been trying to do this for a long time. And a lot of times, you know, when it comes to government action, we will address this a number of times throughout this podcast. The, the appearance of doing something that's action. The appearance of doing something while doing nothing is better than doing nothing. And the appearance of doing something better while actually doing something worse is better than doing nothing. Um, and, and that's kind of the name of politics, right? You know, I'm going to go in, you elect me, I'm going to go in, we're going to fix this problem. Well, some problems really, you know, they're not fixable, and they're definitely not going to be fixable from, you know, some elected official in Congress because they're just inherent in the system. They're inherent in the facts and the structure of whatever the problem is. Um, right? And so I don't really want to go down a rabbit hole about the, cultural issues between hum human pair bonding that lead um, to this sort of to a male and a female in a bed and the expectations are not 100% clear and on the table right then and there, right? There's this guessing game. There's this, um, you know, girls want a guy to try 
Uh, girls don't want to seem easy, so maybe they want to pretend like they don't want it, but they really do, right? No means no, unless it means maybe. I mean, there's all kinds of these cliches that we have in our society, and they're they're there for a reason. Um, they're there. They're there because it's true, and it's funny because it's true, you know. And and so the problem, you know, all that is to say, the problem isn't necessarily with the military, but the problem is with American society, and then the military it just kind of exacerbates it because you have people in crammed together in close proximity. Um, a lot of them will be single, younger people, um, depending on the branch and the location and all that. Maybe they're in a place they never intended to go, so they're away from their family and for the first time in their entire lives. They're isolated. And so people can be more vulnerable to that kind of thing. I mean, you could say the same thing about people that go to college and, you know, you'd probably feel free to look up some numbers and, you know, I'm going to have a place for you all to comment eventually, you know, but I would guess that you have a lot more uh, reports of sexual assault for people that like leave their hometown than people who are kind of just hang around their hometown once they graduate high school um, and they're not, and they get outside of that comfort zone and they're in a strange land with strange people. So it makes sense, right? It'd be perfectly logical for those people to experience more sexual assault in new environments around new people they don't know and, you know, even different regions in the U.S. have wildly different values sometimes when it comes to this kind of human pair bonding behavior. And that also, in and of itself, plays a role. You can think about the high school scenario. You know, word getting around, rumors, girls get embarrassed, they don't want to get a reputation. Guys maybe want to foster their own reputation, maybe, and they talk and they say things they shouldn't. And you can then take, you know, what you know about high school culture, and in a lot of ways, you can then translate that to military culture because. In a lot of ways, people are crammed together, especially the, the younger and lower ranking. You know, they're crammed together in these locations and they're with each other all day, just like in high school. Um, and I think you probably have some military commanders who say, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of the military that's a lot like high school in terms of the social environment. And so what, what are we trying to solve? But, you know, Sometimes just doing doing something different, doing anything different, is not a bad idea, and, and that's what this proposal would be. So the proposal, you know, at a high level, is to take the prosecution discretion away from commanders and give some, I will call it, they call it like an independent military authority. Now, <sighs> independent military authority is kind of an oxymoron because anyone who's under the Department of Defense um, is going to be less than independent. And here's why. The really only pseudo-independent place that you have in the federal government anywhere is probably the Department of Justice. But as we've seen recently, that Department of Justice, you know, their independence is purely dependent on both, you know, the Attorney General and kind of the President's willingness to allow them to be independent. Like pressure can be exerted. But the 
nice thing about the Department of Justice is that when pressure is exerted on them, it kind of becomes visible. And this is not to say that anything about the Department of Justice is perfect or the, or the federal, you know, the federal prosecutorial system is, you know, perfect or anything like that. But when you compare the bureaucracies across the federal government, it probably is one of the most independent. And I'm not including the Supreme Court in this because that's just a whole, that's a non, um, the Supreme Court is not really, doesn't have a role here. So we're really talking about who controls the DOD. Well, it's weird because, you know, the president's supposed to be the commander in chief, but man, Congress is sure involved in a lot of stuff that happens. Um, and that's the way the Constitution is kind of written. So there's a little bit of blending of power. And but the bottom line is that Congress is going to drive the rules. And then the fact that Congress is going to create this new position is inherently going to make this new independent military prosecutorial organization. Its very existence is going to depend upon Congress being happy with their job, right? So if we spend another five years, with, if we change and do spend another five years and nothing changes, they may just scrap it and go back to the way things were, right? So whoever's in those positions, it's going to be in their interest to make Congress happy. That's a problem. That's not what prosecutors traditionally are doing, right? As we talked about earlier, they're normally elected officials and directly elected by local representative. So if you wanted to make a comparison, if you wanted to have that same kind of accountability and independence to the extent that, you know, elections give you that, the military prosecutors would be elected by the troops, right? Because that's who they're enforcing the laws against, just like your local district attorney is elected by the citizens of their district who they are enforcing the laws against. So if it was a democracy and you wanted to treat it the same way with that same kind of independence, then you would have an election for these military prosecutors. Obviously, that sounds absurd and doesn't really fit the whole nature of the military to begin with, but it begins to illustrate some of the nonsense with this whole process. And what I want to do now to sort of illustrate that nonsense is to talk about court-martial in general. Because that's what we're talking about, to take the discretion to take something to a court-martial or not, and whether that discretion needs to be a commander or some other military attorney who happens to be told that they're independent, yet they're still dependent on the federal government for their paycheck, for their very existence, their budget, their organization, all of that, right? All of that bureaucratical stuff um, that, honestly, something like the Supreme Court doesn't have. Generally, judges are independent because they don't have that. And state attorneys, right, they're never purely independent because they still have to worry about budget and they still have to please the voters. And sometimes that's worse than pleasing Congress, but um, probably not in a bureaucracy the size of the Department of Defense. Like the kind of money and the funding and like the turf wars and the battles that go on in that probably is probably the world's biggest bureaucracy, I would imagine. Probably not even close. Um, it's just a terrible place to put something like that. Or, you know, that would be one view because of those factors. Those factors could definitely lead logically to that conclusion. But let's talk about court martials. Court martials were designed to 
allow military commanders during campaigns to essentially keep order. And they really were designed long before the 20th century. So if you think about the way that war worked, really, probably prior to World War One, honestly, is you didn't really have permanent standing armies. Now, in the colonial period and in the uh, imperial period, right, you know, whether it was Spain or Britain, I mean, they had lots of troops and they were at lots of different places. Um, but they were essentially on campaign, right? They were on a mission. They were sent to some island or some location around the world to set up shop and claim some territory for the crown or the monarch, and they were there to administer trade and enforce rules for shipping and all these kind of things. Um, and in that scenario, right, or in both scenarios, I guess, the other scenario would be like if you imagine the Napoleonic Wars, um, you had armies that were marching across, you know, Europe to fight, but the armies were made up of generally, you know, what's referred to as conscripts, meaning they're just normal citizens that once a war breaks out, they get conscripted into military service and they get trained up, um, and they go, right? There's, there wasn't nearly as much of this, I graduated high school, I'm going to go join the armed forces, and I'm going to have a career um, from that. And, you know, before the Napoleonic Wars, you know, even before the American Revolution, where a lot of this military tradition that we have today began, war was a seasonal thing, right? You know, wars would sometimes have to be stopped in the middle of the war so that the soldiers could go home and bring in the harvest, bring in the crops, because if they didn't have those bodies to go do the farming, then everybody would have starved to death. And so it was a, you know, in history, it was just a very different scenario where you didn't, somebody wasn't employed as a soldier. Now, right in um, something like medieval times and, you know, in feudalism, you might have a knight who was a wealthy landowner or, you know, somebody of the nobility, and they just had income from their lands. And so then they could hire people to be what they call like men at arms or something like this. Now, and I'm just speaking very general here. There's lots of different ways and embodiments that this happened, and I'm just using, for the most part, probably English or, you know, Great Britain terminology, just because it's English and it's easier. But, you know, essentially, they weren't professional year-round soldiers that fought wars. They were essentially the peasants. They were the commoners who got forced into military service whenever wars would break out. And, you know, sometimes even, like, depending on where it was, a war would be broken out, and so peasants would know that they were going to get forced into military service. So sometimes they would run and join a group that they knew who the leader was and they respected or, you know, or had a reputation for being successful or treating their troops better. And so, you know, some people would get out ahead of it and try to go join the ones they wanted to, knowing that they were going to be forced into military service one way or the other. In fact, 
you know, in feudalism, one of the requirements for the, the nobility who held title to land underneath the king was to provide literally human beings for war when the time came. That was one of their obligations. And there's a word for it, I think I forget what it's called, but the landowners, by virtue of being landowners at the permission of the king and having all that revenue and money and being in control of that land, um, you know, as the nobility, they had a duty to raise those troops. And so they would literally just force the peasants who lived in their land to become soldiers. And so if you think about that, if you think about those old ways of war, you had a short amount of time that the average and the majority of soldiers were soldiers. And so if you wanted them, if you needed to court-martial them for some reason, right, if you needed to hold a trial or, you know, even just some sort of hearing to find out this person is accused of doing X, Y, Z, somebody's got to make a choice or a decision about whether they think it's true or not. And then based on that decision, punishment would have to be married out. So you can think about people being whipped or, you know, flogged or, you know, put in chains, thrown in a dungeon, you know, or sent out to dig ditches or whatever their punishment might have been back in the day. And by back in the day, I mean a hundred years ago. If you were going to do it, you had to do it like during the campaign, like right then and there. You didn't have time to like take notes about it. Write it down, wait till the war's over, and then, you know, go prosecute that somebody in a, that in a court somewhere. Like, if somebody steals a goat from a farmer without permission while they're on campaign, it's got to be dealt with right then and there. There's just, there was no other option to deal with it later. And so, kind of, court martial was a way that right then and there, the commander, a military commander can say, I'm going to press this person with charges, I'm going to commit a crime. You stand up like a little court right then and there. You have someone act as a judge, um, sometimes a judge and a jury, depending on the different embodiment. Someone lays out the facts. You know, whoever's accusing the person lays out the facts. The person gets an opportunity to put their defense out there. And somebody makes a decision, and punishment gets narrowed out. And it served a number of purposes, right? One, it served the general satisfaction rule of, of law enforcement, right? Somebody thinks they were wrong. And whoever thinks they were wrong and the people who believe they were wrong, they need to see the authority take some sort of action um, to try to remedy that wrong, right? It's that due process. It's that trust in the system. It's the rule of law, that buying in. Like, you know, people need to see that. They need to trust authority. And they're not going to trust authority if they don't, if they can't see authority behaving in a manner that's just and trying to come to a fair outcome. And at the same time, you know, a jury definitely wasn't always a thing, um, and still isn't in a lot of places. Um, that's just an example, one example of it. A lot of times he's probably just an officer making a decision, just like in noble time, in the nobility, you go to the court, there wasn't a jury. It was just a, a, a quote-unquote wise noble man sitting in a chair making decisions about what they thought was true and what's not. I mean, they got games now on your phone that you can pretend to be these people and, and hear these facts and and order outcomes. And if you've seen Game of Thrones, right, uh, you know what we're talking about. And so the same kind of thing, right? Out, a court martial out in the out in the wilderness didn't have time um, to do much else. And then you know, in the Revolutionary War, fast forward to through British history and American history, the idea of juries um, comes into play. 
due process, fairness, all those things that ended up in our Constitution. They weren't invented by our Constitution. They were concepts that existed prior to that, right? Um, and so a lot of times court marshals get uh, referred to in in terms of like George Washington because he helped some court marshals um, during the Revolutionary War. And um, you know, for that, the the United States or the colonies, you know, the, the colonial army, they used the British Articles of War, which was sort of the precursor to the UCMJ, right? So they had this system in place. They adopted it from British, and the British version was one that had been changed and adopted over hundreds of years of warfare. And it was the same thing, right? Whether it's a civil war or the Revolutionary War, you have a commander who's out in an army camp out in the wilderness, right? It's out in Mississippi you know, or Virginia or wherever, right? Georgia somewhere, South Carolina. You don't have a city. And even if there is a town nearby that has a court and maybe a judge, you would have to literally take everyone, all the witnesses, all of your members who are jurors, you would have to transport them over to this town and use their courthouse and the judge and go through that process, right? It's very inefficient when you're talking about horse, horse and buggy, right? In some cases, it'd take two or three days just to make the, the trip by horseback to get everyone there. It was much more efficient to stand up a court right then and there in the battle camp um, and appoint an officer to make a decision or, or appoint some officers to sit in judgment and just run the thing right there, and then merit out punishment, and then everyone it's dealt with rapidly um, and efficiently, and it serves all those functions that that a, a court proceeding is set, is you know is intended to perform, right? Deterrence, punishment, you know, making sure people stay in line, good order and discipline, things like that, you know by having them witness a system that is there to enforce the rules and they're enforced in a fair and just way. Right? It all made sense. Because you didn't have air travel. You didn't have automobiles. And you probably didn't even have a horse for a person, right? Um, and if you know anything about the American uh, West, and like the Western period, they ran into the same thing just with normal civilian law enforcement. Um, and you go watch a bunch of John Wayne movies or whatever, and obviously they're movies, but what the, what what you see in there is, is an accurate representation that not every town, especially um, before the territories were states, not every town had a judge. So a lot of times you'd have a judge just traveled around, and he would only be in a town for maybe a week, and then he would be gone from that town maybe until the next month. You know, he would travel around, so you could never. You might have somebody having to sit in jail for some accused crime until a judge got there. So they could just be sitting in the local jail waiting for a judge to show up uh, for a month. And then they could have a trial. So you could see you can see how a military force can't just sit around, right, and wait for a month when they're on campaign with like a mission and they're fighting a war. They can't just sit somewhere and wait for a month for a judge to show up. And so this there was a practical reason, really, for court martials to come into existence to give them the ability, and by them, I say, give a military force, military commander, the ability to conduct a trial where they were at at the time, because whatever the issue was needed to be dealt with. Um, now, compare that to the modern civilian court system. Right? What happens is 
crime gets reported, probable cause or, or, you know, or some standard of proof is ascertained, the state wants to file charges, it files charges, it sets a hearing, right? The judge has got to make some more rulings. And in a modern context, a, a, a trial for a legitimate type of crime and not, you know, not just some misdemeanor or something like that, it's going to take a year probably, maybe six months um, in some places, but it can take even longer than a year. I mean, a murder trial can take multiple years. Obviously, a military entity fighting a war doesn't have years to spend um, trying to get to a just outcome for these for their military members that are accused of certain kinds of things, right? So that's why um, court marshals were, were valuable, you know, historically, to, to provide that sort of instantaneous option to deal with some issue. I mean, same thing. Think about, even think about World War II. Now, we still have automobiles. You had some air travel. But you're on the front lines in World War II, and somebody does something, and you got to discipline them, right? Right then and there, disciplining people is a very common and necessary and ordinary thing that goes on in the military because people are knuckleheads. And so instead of flying that person back to, you know, London or flying them all the way back to the United States, Still, air travel was overseas, obviously, was possible back then, but it was not easy or convenient, and it would have been very expensive, and you would have spent a lot of resources just doing this. So it was much more practical for a commander in Germany or in France to stand up, court-martial, appoint some officers as judges and juries, and just have it out right then and there. And so that's where court-martials make a lot of sense. And that's where commanders having the discretion to prosecute when the discretion when to prosecute and what to prosecute makes sense, right? That's what they're there. But now it has been 80, 90, 60, 70, 80, 80 years since we've had a full-blown war, right? Neither the Korean conflict or Vietnam um, was the kind of conflict that Necessitated or would have, you know, required that court martials necessarily be handled on location, though they probably were and they probably could have been, but um, there aren't the there aren't nearly the practical considerations. Um, right? I don't know how far a B fifty two can fly, but it's sure a long ways. And if the B fifty two can fly there, then a commercial jet can get somebody home within forty eight hours. That just wasn't a, a possibility in World War Two. And so, as you see, you know. As we've gone away in in time from World War II, most of our troops, and by our troops, I mean most of the United States troops and and, troop, and military troops in general, they're they're in peacetime. They're a standing peacetime army. They live in the local communities. They they get their food from the same Walmart. You know, they get their stuff from the same Amazon. The same UPS guy goes around to their houses. You know, and outside of the few really lower-ranking people that actually live on a military installation, most military people are just members of the community, and the military is their job. They're not warriors. They're not working at Kinko's and then getting, you know, a call from somebody saying, hey, you're going to come fight a war for me tomorrow, and then off they go. Like, that's not how this is working. And so a lot of those practical considerations that made court-martials handy and the reason for the existence don't really exist anymore. Um, and they're not even used. 
in that matter. Despite the fact that court martial authority exists, you know, take an example of like the Iraq war. They weren't doing court martials, you know, in Iraq or Afghanistan. But, you know, right? It's actually more impractical now to do a court martial on campaign than it is to fly everyone back who needs to come back and do the court because that's how easy air travel is now. That's how easy literally traveling around the world is. Is that it's actually now more convenient to just send that person back and let them face justice at a home station court where the system is set up. And so what you end up having is this weird hybrid between what court martials originally were intended to be and a modern state court system where they're still appointing judges, appointing members, filing charges in the same way, and judges are traveling around now. And they're not all, there's not just one court they're going to, but it's not on the battlefield. And it's definitely not as quick um, as it was in the past, you know. And so you have a really blended version of a traditional state court system and what old school court martials were for and what they're intended. And so that leads into this question of how, rel- how relevant, you know, how practical is court martials in and of themselves? Even do we need them, and why? And because that's really where the commander's discretion really comes into play. Like that's why commanders have the discretion in the first place was enabled to do a court martial in a hurry on location for some reason. And so, from that viewpoint, you could say that there's a reason, right, to keep them, but maybe only use them in that manner. You know, and then just deal with crime committed by military members the same way you would deal with it as crime committed by your other citizens. Because the only real difference in 99.9% of the cases between a military member committing a crime and a person in a local community committing a crime is that the person is just employed by the United States military. That's really the only difference. You know, it'd be like prosecuting somebody who's employed by FedEx differently than prosecuting somebody who's employed by UPS just because they work for a different company. There's not practically anything that separates a sexual assault by a military member from a sexual assault from a civilian in pure logic. There's no difference, right? And we're talking about stateside. We're not talking about people raping people, you know, after a battle or pillaging. We're not talking about looting or abuse of war powers or war crimes or anything like that. That is a completely different topic, and that's not what even court martials are necessarily designed for. They can be used for that, but that wasn't what they were designed for. We're talking about normal crime, right? And I hate to say that, but sexual assault, domestic abuse, larceny, assault, theft, grand theft auto, these are just normal, run-of-the-mill civilian crimes. There's nothing special about a military sexual assault compared to a sexual assault in the civilian world, you know. Now, you'll hear people talk about military sexual assault as if it's some sort of heightened crime. Um, and, and what they and what they're really trying to get to there, I think, and what their statements seem to indicate is that because people are forced together by the military, so when it's one military person assaulting another military, that has an effect of sort of like trust and the erosion of confidence in the military system, which can impact the military system as a whole. 
which could be a problem, you know, when that, you know, with, with things like unit cohesion when you're in wartime and you actually have these critical tasks that require trust and continuity and things like that. And so there is probably some legitimacy to that viewpoint. But at the same time, there's other ways that that's already been managed. And that's what I meant earlier when I was talking about a commander has a whole bunch of other priorities to weigh when they're dealing with deciding on prosecutions for things like sexual assault because they have because the mission comes first. And so if the mission, you know, literally is going to fail because of a sexual assault court martial, that's a really hard place for a commander to be in because boy, he's got to choose, right? If his job is to make sure the mission succeeds, then he has to choose the mission. That's what his job is. And if he doesn't do that, then he's not doing his job. And that would be a dereliction of duty. And <clears throat> so the point is there that even though what you'd call military on military sexual assault is different in that aspect from civilian sexual assault, um, it's not so much different that it can't be addressed in another fashion. It doesn't necessarily have to be dealt with by how the criminal justice aspect is designed. So then that leads, you know, to what they're trying to change again. But from what we've read, what's out there, they're not trying to get rid of military court marshals. In fact, what it seems like they're doing is trying to keep court marshals, but make the commander the one not in charge of standing one up which, at the very essence, defeats the purpose of even having a court-martial in the very first place. So why bother keep doing it that way, I guess, is kind of where my thought process is going on this. And I'm just kind of thinking out loud, right? This is a, a lot of details on, on this aren't out. <clears throat> and these laws don't just come into place. It's going to be up to the military service departments to probably figure out how to implement this um, once Congress like gives them some guidance in, in the forms of a, of a legislative bill or something. But if you're going to take commander discretion away, there's very little reason to have court martial anymore. It would just be a normal trial, and you could do it in a federal courthouse. Well, like when they're charging people for trafficking firearms, like the ATF, right? There's federal courthouses for federal crimes that has jurisdiction over um, federal entities and federal jurisdiction, like a military member would be under federal jurisdiction. So if you're going to remove commander discretion. Why the hell even have a court martial? You know, and so maybe, and then the idea would be, okay, if we're going to follow that logic, they're only talking about removing discretion for commanders for certain things, like sexual assault and maybe domestic violence. I don't know how you do them separately. I think they have to be done together. But which would say, you know, if you want to follow that logic and be logical about it and be intelligent, they wouldn't be court martials at all anymore, right? They would be something else. You can still keep court martials for your very military service-related crimes, which historically, court-martials were only able to be used for service-related crimes because people were smarter back in the day than they are today for some reason. At some point, I think there were some court cases or something that changed that. 